to Season 5 of Writers' Festival Radio, broadcasting from the unceded and unsurrendered territory of the Anishinaabe Algonquin Nation. My name is Sean Wilson. I'm the Artistic Director of the Ottawa International Writers' Festival, Canada's Festival of Ideas since 1997. We're celebrating 25 years of community connection, and I want to give special thanks to our amazing volunteers who make it all possible, and to thank you for supporting the festival, authors, booksellers, and each other. Today on Writers' Festival Radio, we present the second of three special episodes in collaboration with Carleton University's Beyond Resettlement Conference. Here's Professor Zulkafar Hirji in conversation with Tasneem Jamal. Tasneem was born in Uganda and immigrated to Canada with her family in 1975. The author of the novel, Where the Air is Sweet, she serves as a nonfiction editor at the New Quarterly and is at work on her second novel. When not writing, she serves as communications officer at Project Plowshares, a Waterloo-based peace research institute. This past September 2022 marked the 50th anniversary of the more than 50,000 Ugandan Asians who were expelled from Uganda in 1972 by the military dictator Idi Amin. These people, women, men, children, families, many of whom had known no other home than Africa, some for generations, were given 90 days to leave Uganda or face severe consequences. This year also marks the anniversary of the full commencement of Idi Amin's almost decade-long reign of terror, during which more than 500,000 Ugandan Africans were also murdered. Our series of conversations focuses on authors who have written fictional novels related to the expulsion of the Ugandan Asians. The series is part of the conference Beyond Resettlement, exploring the history of the Ugandan Asian community in exile to be held at Carleton University in November, 2022. The conversation is also featured as part of the Ottawa International Writers Festival podcast series. I'm Zulfikar Hirji and joining me today is the writer Tasneem Jamal. Tasneem was born in Mbarara, Uganda and immigrated to Canada with her family in 1975. She's the author of the novel, Where the Air is Sweet, published by HarperCollins in 2014. She serves as a nonfiction editor at the New Quarterly and is at work on her second novel. When not writing, Tasneem serves as communications officer at Project Plowshares, a Waterloo-based peace research institute. She lives in Kitchener, Ontario, in Canada. Welcome, Tasneem, and thank you for joining me today. My pleasure. Tasneem, you were born in Barar, Uganda. What is your most lasting memory of your life there? It's interesting. I, I was thinking about this question earlier, and I, it occurred to me that I, I have... Um, exactly zero memories of um, Uganda prior to the expulsion in 1972. I was very young. I was um, not yet four. Um, but my family, uh, we did leave in 1972. Um, but w my father um, had a hard time letting go. And so we actually returned uh, and lived in Kampala uh, when I was um, five. So about a, about a year later, we, we returned. And I have I have many memories of that time period. Uh, so this would have been um, 1974. Uh, Idi Amin's army is, you know, running the show. And I have a few uh, vivid memories of, of that time. Uh, one one is, you know, going to school uh, for the for the first time I was I was taken to a nursery school, and I, I did not want to go. So I have a very vivid memory of, of kind of being rustled into into having to, to go to class. Um, 
ended up liking it, of course. Uh, and I have another vivid memory that um, uh, I used uh, uh, actually in, in the opening of the novel, which is uh, going to the swimming pool at the Apollo Hotel, which is something my family did. Um, so there's a recreational thing at the time. And, uh, and Idi Amin uh, showed up to go swimming. And uh, I vividly recall that moment, uh, as you can imagine, it was, um, it was a pretty profound experience for my family. So that, that, those two um, are, are kind of powerful memories of that particular, of, of Uganda in particular uh, at, at that time. Wow, that's pretty atypical of most stories you hear, which people kind of talk about, they talk about boarding a plane and never returning or only returning many, many years later. But your father, you said, had difficulty letting go. Mm-hmm. Describe what that meant. What what was yeah. the what were the concerns yeah so he was you know he was born in barara uh, my my grandfather uh, actually came from uh, uh, the indian state of gujarat in sort of the early 1920s so so his children were born in east africa uh, in uganda and um so that was that was the only world my father knew um uh, he was a, a, a you know a young man in his late 20s he would have been actually he would have been 30 um, at the time. And um, so he'd really come into his own. He was very confident. He was a, he was a entrepreneur, like, like many um, uh, Ismailis living there at the time. And, and uh, he didn't want to leave. He, 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 like, like a lot of people uh, thought that this was all quite bananas. This, this um, general who has taken over the country in a coup and, and, you know, the instability was actually something I think for him that was, it was a kind of, um, it was a good thing because he, he he thought this is so crazy. This it won't last. You know he'll be overthrown. I'm not leaving. This is this is ridiculous. Like you know it's it's hard to imagine looking looking back through the lens of history uh, that anybody wouldn't want to leave. But you know in the moment in the time um, it did seem um, incomprehensible to leave. And I, I use the I, I've used this analogy before for people that. Um, probably because at the time it was not long after the Titanic film had come out when, when I was being interviewed about the book initially. And, um, you know, survivors talked about being on the Titanic that night as it was sinking and being told they needed to get out, get off the ship and onto these rickety little lifeboats, you know, in the, in the North Atlantic where it was freezing, the lights were still working on the Titanic and, and the intellectually they understood it was sinking, but they, they couldn't viscerally believe it. You know, it, it, they wanted to stay on this warm lit ship, not jump into, into something that was unknown and terrifying. And so I think that was his headspace. And in fact, a, a big part of the impetus for me writing this book was, was really trying to understand my father's um, choices uh, because the, it was very hard on the family. Um, and, uh, you know, he stayed behind uh, the, after the deadline. My, my mother and my brothers and I we were very young. We um, we left um, and he was going to join us later, which he did do. Um, but then he wanted to come back. And he just he he always wanted to stay, even when we were in, we were in Kampala for we only stayed there six months because it was so um, it was so unsafe. Um, that, you know, there was no effective police police force. Uh, it was it was it was simply dangerous. And so. Um, you know, we ended up living in, in Kenya and in Nairobi for a year. Um, and I, I talked to my father uh, in, in, when I was writing the book and, and as he explained it, he said, yeah, we were in Kenya, but my eye was always on Uganda. 
I was always determined to go back until he simply could not go back. And so I think, um, I think it was, a lot of it was just, you know, fear. He didn't want to go to a place he knew nothing about. He couldn't, you know, U- Ugandan Asians couldn't take money. Uh, you know, it was 50 pounds sterling each. You could take uh, whatever you could manage in your suitcase to get on the airplane. Uh, and that was it. And um, he had a whole family, um, young children, uh, elderly father. And uh, it, it, it just seemed easier in his mind to stick with what he knew. Uh, he could figure it out. He could always figure out Uganda. And so he uh, he was extremely reluctant to leave. And so, yeah, we, we did go back and um, um, yeah, it was, it was hard, but it was, you know, I had a lot more sympathy for him when I, when I wrote the book because I, you know, as a novelist, you can enter, you can, you can en- enter the psyche of, of, of these characters. And um, so this character that I based on my father struggles um, very much uh, to leave. And, and, and I, I, I believe I can I can actually fully understand um, his reluctance. Yeah, I mean it's interesting you talk about this um, reluctance to leave. In fact, you and I share this in common. My father too was very um, reluctant to leave until my mother threatened him with divorce, and he was there until the very last moment. Um, some of my relatives never left um, and lived there, have lived there throughout the period of time um, since 72, uh, which is really fascinating for me. And uh, when I met them, when I returned to Uganda, it was also very interesting to hear their perspective. So I was very curious when I read the book and, and your answer just now, which, you know, kind of puts things in perspective for me as well to say that, you know, there were South Asians who didn't leave and Mm -hmm. they wrote out the war, they wrote out, you know, the atrocities, they wrote out, you know, the changes of um, government and so on. And, uh, and their stories had not been written fully either, which is really interesting to think Mm -hmm. about what the kinds of experiences they would have had. Um, The story you're telling is, is a fictional one and um, it unfolds, the life worlds of members of a multi-generational South Asian family in Africa, but it's located in these very specific historical events in the decades preceding Amin's order that the Asians be expelled. And then some years later, as you've just described, what kind of research did you do? Uh, What kind of archives did you look into in addition to your family history? How long did you spend researching before you kind of began the book and sort of put pen to paper or fingers to the keyboard? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it's, those are good questions. I, um, the story sort of gestated for, for a long time. I, I did recognize, uh, I, I'm trained as a journalist. I worked as a journalist that, that this is, a it's just a good story. It's, um, and it's a story that really hadn't been told in any, in any substantial way. Um, so I, I, I always recognized that there was, there was a story to be told, but for, for me, because, um, because of my personal experience with it and because I was so young, I was, as I said, I was not yet four when the expulsion order happened. And then it was basically about 18 months before we finally settled in Canada in 1975 of 18 months of just sort of literal back and forth. Um, you know, Uganda, the UK, Canada, uh, Uganda, Kenya, Canada again, you know, so it was, it was just, it was so confusing to me as a child and also extremely emotionally charged to these reformative years. And so 
there was there were sort of these two sides of my brain, one that recognized this is a, a story that ought to be told. And the part that couldn't, that it was too overwhelming to tell, you know, it was just, I was uh, all the personal stuff around it. And so um, I realized with fiction, because I, creative writing is my, you know, I call it my sadhana, you know, my calling. It's, it's, it's um, sort of where I feel I can best express myself. But, but uh, with this story, I also realized it was, it was the only way I could tell it uh, because I, I felt it was an emotional story uh, uh, for me. And, um, but I'm also a journalist. And so I want to get all the, all the historical, the geographical details correct. It's also a story of a, for a lot of people, including yourself. And so I felt a sense of responsibility as well to, uh, not that I'm telling anyone else's story, I'm not, but the, the context is shared by a lot of people and I, I wanted that to be uh, accurate. So all that to say, initially, the research consisted of just talking to my father uh, and asking him things because I hadn't growing up. It was, you know, it wasn't something, as, as I'm sure you know, you don't sit around the dinner table talking about this crazy experience we went through. It was just life. You just didn't, you know, it was just what it was. And so as I got older, I started to ask him, you know, a few questions here and there, but not until I decided I was going to write, write the book, which probably I was, I would say, uh, well into my thirties, probably in my late thirties. Um, I asked him for more specific details about things. Um, and then it was, you know, family, friends, and that type of, of that generation who were adults when they left. And so I was getting, you know, starting to get more information. My grandfather had actually written um, kind of a, a bit of a stretch to call them memoirs. They were kind of like a, a chronicling of his life in, in almost almost a point form. Uh, and, and he'd written it in Gujarati, and then it was translated. Um, not a great translation, according to my father. So it was, it was, it gave me sort of bullet points essentially of, of these major points in his life. So I had, I had that to work with. And so I, that's where I started. Um, and then my husband and I actually, um, we both worked at the globe and mail and both wanted to sort of, we had these dreams. I wanted to write my novel. He wanted to, uh, he, he flies airplanes uh, sort of as, as a hobby and he wanted to try doing that as a job. So we quite um, dramatically <laughs> quit our jobs. We had two small a baby and a toddler and um, uh, moved to East Africa. We, we ended up living in, in Dar es Salaam in Tanzania where he, where he had a job. My husband got a job flying and that's where I wrote the book. And at that point I, I wanted to do a more serious research. So I, I, um, I started, you know, read historical books on Uganda and, and quite often uh, the section on, on Asians was so tiny <laughs> Um, it would be a couple of paragraphs. These traders, Asian traders, was usually what they were called, and uh, this further fed my um, uh, desire to, to write it, uh, write about the experience because it was it was just so uh, insufficient. You know, I had relatives who were born, lived, and died in Uganda. They knew nothing else, so it wasn't sort of a little stopover. Or it wasn't you know, it was we, we put some roots down, and um, so I found a couple of books. There was. Um, State of Blood by Henry Kayemba, who was a, a minister in, in uh, um, Idi Amin's government. And so he wrote, uh, you know, quite detailed accounts of, of that experience. And, and David Martin's book, General Amin, which amazingly was published in 1973. Um, he's a, he was a British uh, journalist. And it was it, so he was right there and, um, you know, had some 
fantastic background. Um, I read a few histories, uh, uh, you, um, you know, uh, even pre-colonial and, and colonial Uganda, and then the post-colonial period, which was obviously very important uh, to the background of the book. Um, newspaper accounts uh, from from um, Canadian uh, news, newspapers, uh, just to get a sense of the coverage of the expulsion and of uh, Canadians coming over, and also in, in the UK, UK papers. So there was newspaper research. So that was that was the, um, the formal, I guess, formal research part. Um, uh, to get the, sort of the facts straight, but the initial story, the kind of emotional story, was very much people's accounts, um, relatives, family, friends who had been there. I wanted to get a feel for their experience, and then you know, including my mother, the women, what it was like, my aunts, some of um, my dad's sisters who were a bit older, so they had better sort of better memories of what happened um, and little details. Like I wanted to know what kind of, you know, what was the brand of cigarette you were smoking? Uh, what was, what was the, what was the Swahili like, right? Like that it was, it was different, for example, than the Swahili spoken in Nairobi and certainly in Dar es Salaam. It was, it was a more kind of broken, uh, not a first language Swahili. So I wanted to, I wanted to reflect that in, in how the characters speak. Um, so um yeah, that was that was sort of the, the 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 way I researched researched the book. Yeah, I mean it's it's remarkable. Those details certainly do come out in the book, but in this kind of not heavy-handed way, one gets the sense that you know you're it's very immersive the the way you've written it. That you know you're not you you're not bombarded with facts, but they kind of get sprinkled throughout that you feel like you're entering a you know these historical moments with, with, with a great deal of ease. And I think that that's kind of what I noticed about the book is that it's not, and the, and your, and your way of kind of dealing with these historical facts was, was very incidental. It didn't seem, it was really this, this overwhelming story of this family and how they navigate these historical moments. Um, Mm. And I was very struck in a sense um, by, you know, the book, is about these big issues, identity, racial divides, the effects and afterlife of colonial politics in Africa, Uganda in particular. But really, you take us into these really interior spaces of the home and the inner lives of you know, your characters. And um, I remember one incident in particular from the book was the striking moment when, when Jafar teaches his wife, Mumtaz, how to use a Minolta camera. I just was so struck by this ability to kind of move between these kind of macro and micro registers of, and the way in which these intimate moments, whether it's in in the bedroom or in the kitchen or in the living room, I mean, it seemed to me that these are where, this is where history is actually made and not Mm. in the kind of big sort of politics uh, of, um, of the state room or the, you know, the battlefield. I was just curious, how did you navigate these two different registers? It's really fascinating for me to read. Well, well, one of one tool, uh, I think I call it a tool that I used is um, the narrative, the perspective rather of the novel is um, a third person limited perspective. So you have Raju and Mumtaz narrating the story, right? From their perspectives, but it's not an, there's not an, omniscient narrator because that kind of I think the danger of using an omniscient narrator is um you can start to be a bit heavy-handed you know you sort of give some let me give the background of the politics and you're kind of trying to educate the audience and and so so somebody once described an omniscient narrator as like is like trying to um um 
like it has the power of a jet engine. Like when it works well, it's it's magnificent, but you know, it's really hard. <laughs> yeah. and it'll crash and burn very quickly. So I stayed away from that. And with the with a limited um narrative voice, you you can't cheat. You can't and you, I mean, you could try, you could have a character sort of having a ridiculous moment of saying, well, in, you know, 1967, you know, uh, a, a Bote relied on Amin's army or whatever, right? It, 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 but, but it wouldn't ring true. And, and you, um, you need to kind of, as, as a novelist, you need to trust your character uh, and you need to genuinely believe that this is a, like a whole being, which is a really kind of magical process in writing, right? That um, when you're when you're actually in the character, and you're, you know, for me, I, when when Raju and, and Mumtaz are sitting at at the dining room table and having a conversation, where you know he actually wants this woman's opinion, and she, she's she's talking, and when I wrote that scene, and I and I mean this really, I like literally, Mumtaz was speaking, and I I finished writing that that really her words. And I was like, Whoa, <laughs> I hadn't consciously intended to write that. She, she said it and it was, it was a, you know, it was political stuff, but she, it was from the perspective of her, you know, her limitations as a woman at the time and what access she would have had to that information, which makes it so much more, um, you know, authentic. And, 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 you know, I love to hear that that came across for you because it, um, cause the other, other challenge I had is in, that time period um, that the book covers and, and also culturally people didn't talk about their feelings or they didn't talk quite so much about, they didn't analyze themselves in the way maybe that we do now. And so um, they're just kind of reacting to things and having conversations about it. And so, you know, it was my, it was my job as, as a novelist to, as I said, sort of imbue these people with, with realness so that the conversations are, they ring true. And, and I think part of it is, you know, my personality and, and my interests uh, have always been, um, I'm a news junkie. And so I, I, my father and I would have conversations, political conversations. And so I, I kind of had a sense of the cadence of how those, how those talks would go. Right. So, so that was something that um, that I was conscious of as I was writing. And the and the other the other thing that sort of without planning happened was uh, when we were living, my husband and I and our babies were living in in Tanzania. We had to go to South Africa for a month. Uh, he was doing some um, work on the airplane, and South Africa is an interesting place, sort of uh, at that point in its history, which which to me was very similar perhaps to where Uganda was uh, in those early post-colonial years where, you know, South Africa is still dealing with these very powerful residue of apartheid and, and um, these, it was it much, it was at a much more conscious level that the, the question of race and where do people fit in and how people are eyeing each other. And so I was trying really hard to observe any kind of interactions. I, we were staying in a hotel and the staff, it was interesting how the staff, uh, people of color, um, would have conversations with me that they wouldn't have with my husband, who's white, um, you know, and they'd sort of say things like, oh, apartheid's not over. And, you know, and they would share things with me. And then because I have this North American accent, when I was out with the kids at the playground, you know, there was a, there was a, a woman there with her grandson, a, a white woman, she just sort of out of the blue started saying, you know, it wasn't like you've read. It wasn't, 
we weren't so terrible, you know, we were, you know, and, and she started sort of sharing. And, and so I found this kind of, um, it was like, I got to kind of go back in history in Uganda's history and, and, and listen to these conversations when it was, you know, really quite, quite fresh coming out of, of that colonial period. So, um, in all those ways, um, I, I was able to, to, um, to bring this out, um, the history through living, living beings. And, and my, my editor at HarperCollins, to my amazement, um, after the earlier drafts, she was like, no, no, more politics. We want more, <laughs> which I was thrilled. I was like, wow, really? You get in politics? Okay. So I was able to dig deeper because they gave me that encouragement, um, to do so that in fact, when you, when you are speaking through human beings, um, people are interested. Um, they will be interested. You're listening to Writers Festival Radio. As always, I want to thank you for listening and for supporting authors and booksellers through these difficult times. Our official bookseller is Perfect Books on Elgin Street, and wherever you are right now, there's an independent bookseller nearby who would be more than happy to sell you some great books. If you enjoy the podcast or any of our virtual programming, please consider making a charitable donation. We can't do this without your support. And now, back to the conversation. You've mentioned a couple of times now that, you know, in a sense, you wanted to write this history or this story, um, which is a kind of a historical fiction or a fiction story set in historical events. Um, 2014, you published this book. Why was it that, in your view, that between 1972 and 2014, there have been so few books about this experience. And in your conversation so far, we mentioned the fact that, you know, you found so few books about Asians, even in Africa. I mean, what what do you think accounts for that gap or that limited number of accounts? You know, it's a good question. I, I think part of it, I think there are a few reasons. Um, One is the sense, you know, of of the Asians who were expelled, who were living in in Uganda, like that maybe there's a sense of just kind of wanting to fly under the radar a little bit. Um, You know, I remember when um, 9-11, when the the aftermath of the the, the attack on the Twin Towers, my father suddenly became really afraid um, because of all this backlash against Muslims. And he was kind of like, he was visibly um, afraid. And I said, you, do you, do you think we're going to get thrown out? And he's like, you don't know, it might happen. And, and, you know, and I, and I, and I realized there's this just sense of, you know what, we're not going to bother anyone. We're just going to live our lives. Um, because going through that kind of, and it is a trauma going through that kind of trauma, uh, you, you just want to quietly live your life. And I, I think so people weren't really shouting from the, from the rooftops about look what I've been through. Um, and, and I also think, as I said earlier, that, you know, when we were sitting around the dinner table, we didn't really talk about it. It was just, it was just life and you just carry on and you're grateful. Um, you're grateful to, to, to live in a country where you're able to work and look after your family and feel safe and all these things. So I think it just didn't feel extraordinary to people. Uh, and, and a lot of, um, this was probably my favorite feedback, but a lot of people of my parents' generation would send me random emails or I would see them at book events and they'd come up and say, 
you know, um, the, the people who lived it, but also their children that like, thank you, because I didn't know my parents went through this or the people who lived it. I don't think they realized how extraordinary it was. Um, and, and so I think it was just not um, really told. The other the other side of it, I think, is a sense of maybe a little bit of a little bit of guilt, you know, that, that this was deserved, um, that there was absolutely, um, this, um, racially stratified society in, in Uganda that, you know, people weren't sending their Asian daughters to hang out with, um, indigenous African men to get married to them. They, they, those, those accusations were, were legitimate, uh, that were, you know, um, of course there are reasons for this, uh, and, and, um, but I, I think it was kind of like, okay, you know, um, it's complicated. It's a complicated story. And, 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 you know, as, again, as a journalist, I would say people will gravitate towards an easy victim perpetrator narrative. And I don't think this is that, uh, I think that it is obviously much more complex and, and, and that's why, you know, for me in fiction, I'm able to treat every character as a whole human being and, and, um, including, you know, Idi Amin, you know, that everybody is, is a product of their environment. And um, so it's not that simple, right? Like it's, and I didn't, I, even growing up, I, I, I would get the question as, as we do as people of color, you know, where are you originally from? And I would say Uganda and people would look really confused and then I'd have to kind of explain, yes, my, my, you know, grandparents, my mother's case, my great grandparents, left from the Indian subcontinent, they went to East Africa. And then, you know, the, the reaction would kind of be like, oh, you know, whatever, you got kicked out of a country that wasn't really your country. Like, I didn't sense a lot of sympathy. And so I think, I think, again, that's because it's not a simple narrative of good and bad and victim and and, and bad guy. So I, I think that might be what's behind it. Um, mm-hmm. It's because it's kind of a complicated story. Um, yeah, difficult, yeah. difficult to tell. And, uh, and uh, it's easier um, to just kind of accept the stereotypes. Oh yeah, I, I did write elephants and, you know, I ate curry and, you know, we had, you know, servants who were black and mm-hmm. rather rather than talking about the fact that in fact, the first two people that I remember in my life were, you know, my ayahs, uh, women who my mother had put in charge of, you know, taking care of us. And they're my, you know, I don't know what happened to them. And, mm-hmm. you know, I often wonder and think about them Um not because my mother was this inattentive, distant person, but because that was the norm of practice and that's what you did. And, and you know, they were the ones who, you know, sort of put me to bed and fed me and sang me stories and, you know, told me mm-hmm. stories and so on. So I do think it's a, a complicated space for those of us who were sort of in that environment. But it also then begs the question, if you don't tell these stories, what is the cost Later on, mm-hmm. you know, um, uh, if you kind of bury these narratives, and then as a journalist, as a writer, what's your responsibility towards these stories? And I think you've kind of hinted at that a little bit that you felt responsible to tell the story. But then there's the issue of having to deal with the trauma that it raises for people who have to read these uh, stories who wanted to bury them. So it's it's yeah. this kind of uh, you know kind of mixed sort of set of things that one has to deal with. I wanted to turn a little bit back to the book and just ask you about 
gender norms and expectations as well, because I, because I raised the you know issue of these ayahs who raised me and my mother and so on. Um, and I was thinking about Rahmat and Mumtaz, two of your characters from very different generations. Um, talk to me about gender in the book and how you dealt with those questions of those different gender norms and expectations, especially for mm-hmm. women. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it was definitely um, uh, sort of on the forefront of my mind. I, I um, one thing I decided early on is I wanted a woman to, to, um, to tell the story of the politics. I wanted, uh, you know, I wanted uh, Mumtaz was very important as the perspective um, mostly because I'm a woman, uh, but also because I wanted to tell it in a kind of intuitive way, and she's an intuitive character, um, so that was important to me. Um, I did struggle a little bit in the sense of um, Remeth. Remeth is, is if, if there is one tragic character in this book, to me, she is she is the most <laughs> she is the tragic character in the book, and I and I and I think um, having to kind of show. Um, you know, a patriarchal culture, uh, 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 a character like Raju, who I, I actually toned him down considerably uh, from earlier drafts because my editors um, at HarperCollins were struggling with how horrible uh, he was. And, you know, I had a conversation with a, a fellow South Asian writer a few years later. We were talking about this and she was, you know, kind of like... Um, it's very difficult when you're writing for a Western audience to really show um, a South Asian couple in the 1940s or even later, you know, it's authentically show them because it's very hard to read and understand uh, from, you know, a contemporary Western perspective that like, how how do you, how do you not hate this guy? And how, you know, I want, I want the reader to, to sympathize with this character at some point. Um, so I did, to- I did have to tone him down a little bit. The women um, uh, struggled to have a voice. Mumtaz, uh, like, like Ismaili women at the time would have been well-educated. Uh, that was also important to show that that was, that was the case that, uh, you know, the, 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 the girls had the opportunity to go to school. And so they would be bright um, in terms of educated, bright, Um Remitz didn't get any of those opportunities. And, um, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a, a conversation Mumtaz has with Jaffer where, where she says something about, you know, I, I, we never saw Africans. We didn't even know how they lived. We didn't listen to their music. We didn't, you know, it was, they were so kind of cocooned. Um, uh, so it was a very different experience for, for women, um, life in Uganda uh, was very different for, for Asian women than it was for men in particularly the interacting with, um, with indigenous Africans, uh, in, in particular. So in, in many ways, um, even though Mumtaz is, is such a major narrative voice in this book, um, in many ways, this book has felt to me like the story of, um, of the men uh, there, there's a moment where Mumtaz takes a photograph of Remeth and her, uh, Esteri, her friend and uh, you know servant, as they go on their daily walk, and, and Mumtaz takes a photograph, and she realizes later that she um, she didn't set the focus properly, and and she says, "I I I made a mistake. I didn't I didn't have the focus on the women." And and you know that that that's something that was a little bit of of sort of my 
authorial voice coming in there a little bit that, that this was this was the story of men. Uh, this wasn't this isn't the book that really gets into um, the experience of, of women. Um, so so you know there's that side of it, but also you do see in particular in Raju in his relationship with Montaz shift in his views of you know what a, what a woman is and, and pointing out at one point when he finally tells her what really is going on in Nairobi that you know you're not a child you, you, you know and, and earlier he's he's sort of having this internal moment with his wife where it's like he's kind of like it's like having a child I don't have a partner in this life and you know that that there is that shift in him this recognition that um that these women are your equal they're not they're not inferior to you um and and of course uh Jopper is, is more modern, but he also has his moments, you know, where Mumtaz is yapping on about politics and he gets kind of annoyed, like go in the kitchen and help, you know, there's, but he's also starting to, to, to shift. So there's kind of, um, there's definitely movement um, in that time period, you know, Mumtaz is on the birth control pill. She's, you know, she's talking about desire things she had never been taught that she could have. Um, so there's a, a, a kind of an a, awakening in that way. So I, I you know, I, I would say it's sort of, um, of two minds about it that I, I I do feel this was this because of because the men were permitted to engage in the in in the sort of world out there this kind of became their book in 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 a, in a sense more than um, uh, you know the book I've written this book I've written now um, is is much more focused on women and that's something that um, I was I was. I don't know how conscious I was when I set out to write it. I just wanted to tell the story, but it started to become. Um, um, yeah, a book of, of sort of men and what's happening with them and in their world. And then, you know, Mumtaz is kind of fighting to get in there and Rimet essentially, you know, um, gets shoved aside uh, by the men, um, um, if not if not by Mumtaz, who's very supportive. Um, so, yeah, I think I think that that's, you know, that's an interesting kind of, it's not just a generational issue. It's just, it's just, the location of women in this world of men. Um, and it, it's interesting that, um, in fact, many of the early histories of Asians um, in East Africa is a history of men. Um, mm. You know, the big men who came and and they didn't come with their women. And whether that's in, in, in Muslim communities or Hindu communities, and, and there are, you know, were specific reasons why these individuals came on their own. Um, and, you know, you just, there's a scene in the book, which is actually quite interesting. You describe a relationship between one of the, you know, one of the male um, Asian characters and an, a black African woman. Um, I won't say more than that, except for it's a very intriguing moment. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that that kind of um, histories have been very sort of occluded from our, our view of what actually happened to women. But I think the other thing that was really, really interesting for me is that you uh, mentioned the, you know, that this is, uh, these are Ismailis. And for our audience who doesn't know what, who the, those individuals are, this is a Muslim community amongst many, uh, which, you know, uh, settled in um, in East Africa from from um, the Indian subcontinent, uh, primarily Gujarat uh, region. But what was interesting is that you mentioned you mentioned the the differences of background, that there were Punjabi speakers and Gujarati speakers, and I think that that those kinds of intra. Um, South Asian community differences is not something that people talk about either. And I think mm -hmm. that those different traditions, people living in rural areas, people living in cities, that this was not one big 
community, um, which shared, um, there were Christians, there were Muslims of different varieties and, and, diff- and, and there were mm-hmm. Hindus of different backgrounds. Um, so I, I think that the, that the book in its own way and the way you've done the research and the way you've kind of brought those really subtle nuances were really sort of exciting for me to read. And I, and I really was appreciative um, as someone who's a historian and someone who's an anthropologist, um, mm-hmm. you know, appreciated those, those differences because I think oftentimes one gets a sense when you read um, these kinds of accounts of a kind of monolithic communities, which all had one aim, one purpose, one complexion, one background. But, um, you know, I, I really also appreciated the cl- the economic and class differences, you know, people in poverty, people in wealth. I think that that kind of gives a whole different kind of outlook to the expulsion itself, that, you know, these were not rich immigrants who kind of had made it big, large on the backs of Africans, but many people were extremely poor uh, mm-hmm. and 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 didn't and they were swept up in this and had to come you know from poverty into a background of immigrant poverty mm-hmm. they didn't have anything to begin with and it wasn't a level playing field and into that i wanted to ask you you know this is the 50th anniversary of the asian expulsion from uganda um this year marks that that moment also, as I mentioned, you know, it was the full kind of start of Idi Amin's reign of terror in which Black Africans, 500,000 or more, were murdered. What, in, and you've written this book in 2014. Obviously, it's going to be reread now by many, many more people because this is, you know, a critical moment in this historical, you know, anniversary. Looking back now, would you have written it differently or would you look at it now differently or what have you sort of thought about in the last, I guess, um, you know, decade or so since you, you know, a little bit less than a decade since you wrote this, what are your thoughts now about this history? You know, it's your history in part, but also your family, friends of yours, relatives. What do you, what do you want them to know about this moment? It's a good question. Um, I don't, I actually, I don't think I would, write it differently. I felt, um, no, I, I think, um, sort of as a living, as a living thing, as, as books are right. We, you know, if, if you, if you read it in a different time period, it becomes a different thing sort of based on, um, where you are at that point. And I, I feel, I feel pretty comfortable that I, I, um, that I wrote it the way I did there. there it's, it's interesting now, I would say it's become a little more difficult maybe to write um, about communities that aren't your own. Um, you know, I, I, I did struggle with with writing a great deal uh, in, in the in the perspective of uh, or even having characters that are uh, indigenous um, African characters. Grace, for example, um, was a character who who had less of a presence in, a, in an earlier draft. And then I expanded it and, and, you know, part of me thought I don't have the right to tell anything about her story. I don't know her experience, but then I, I can't not include her. I can't erase her from this um, book, from this history. Um, so I feel like that if, if anything, I might've paused a bit on that now because there is a sense that, you know, that, you should not tell stories that are not yours to tell, but it's a, it's a complicated, um, it's a complicated issue. Uh, and I'm, and I'm actually glad that I, (laughs) I didn't worry too, too, too much about it. I did think about it, but, um, because I do think uh, 
she needed a presence in this story, a significant presence in the story. Um, you know, it's, 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 it's the only, the only thing I think of that strikes me as kind of become a, a, a bigger deal. And that relates to the book to a degree is, is the question of, you know, how, uh, uh, Canada Day and, and the, the, the acknowledgement of the Indigenous um, experience in Canada um, and that that's become as it should in the, you know, it's it's added to this, um, the story of Canada. You know, when I wrote it, it was, was kind of a, maybe, you know, some people reacted to it as a little more of a raw, raw Canada story. And when I don't, I don't think that it is, I think that it is a little more complicated than that, but um but it's 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 important for me, and this is why I wouldn't change the book. It's important, I think, to acknowledge that you know Canada has this history, much like Uganda had this history of of settlement and of um, not respecting the indigenous population. Um, but that for immigrants like me, um, it's been a it's been a good place, and it's it's a good story, and you can have that good story and also have the terrible story that they, they can all live simultaneously and that we can have these conversations and say, you know, as, you know, as we're literally, there's a reckoning going on in this country, you know, in terms of like actually, you know, the earth is kind of bringing up these bodies, you know, of these residential schools and we, we there, there is an actual reckoning. And, and I think that, it's just never that simple that, like I said earlier, that I, I don't think um, I, I don't think it's fair to anyone to, to characterize sort of absolutely horrible and absolutely victim. And, you know, so it's just complicated. It's part of so that I can say Canada has been wonderful to Ugandan Asians and was very welcoming and gave us this opportunity, but oh my God, Canada has this history that we need to talk about and that we need to be made aware of. And so I feel like I'm actually glad that the book is what it is because it's, um, it's also a colonial, it's a book about, you know, the post-colonial consequences of, of these actions of, you know, these European nations and, 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 um, that, you know, there's this this conversation that Raju has with Mumtaz where he's sort of like, well, who says this isn't our home? You know, if you if you respect the people who live here and, you know, you can make it your home. And but but that that respect is key. Right. I mean, there's a sense of. Um, um, it's 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 not it's not simplistic. And, and in this era of where it's gotten so much worse, even in the last decade of tweets and um, quick arguments and, you know, um, it's just complicated and it's messy and, um, and I, I'm, I'm okay with it. And I think I would have been okay with it if I wrote it in the last couple of years. Yeah, actually, I was going to ask you because there is that point in the book when Roger asked the question, when does a land become ours? And I was going to ask you, how would you answer this question? I mean, when does a land become ours? And when do you, as an immigrant, become a citizen and not remain an immigrant? I mean, I, I, I'm, I think that many communities in Canada um, maybe don't think about this question, but maybe struggle with it in other ways, uh, in the way that they are not the majority or 
and but also Indigenous Canadians who um, who rightfully claim the land as theirs. Um, but then, how do we, as immigrant communities, you know, settle fully in a place that is not our own? What are the how does a land become ours? I think that was a very profound question in the book. And how would you answer it? It is. It is. And I don't I don't I don't think the answer is simple, but I do think it comes down to. Um, to honor and re- honoring and respecting, you know, those around you and those who came before you and. Um, because if you do that, then. Then you can coexist. I mean, I, I think that history has shown a kind of retribution isn't helping anyone. Sort of, whether it's Uganda or you know Rhodesia or, or you know that that a, a sort of um, expelling isn't expelling the problem. I think. Um, I, I mean, I, I feels like a very big question, um, and and I, I I think my simplest reply would be um, it becomes your home when you um, when you honor everyone who lives on it and and uh, or lives in it and and with you and beside you and um, acknowledge that you know where I live um, this land was promised to the Six Nations and uh, you know they weren't given what they were promised and um, I can acknowledge that uh, every opportunity I have, hopefully not just as a simple platitude before I make a speech, but like genuinely that this is, there is pain on this land that there's, like I said, the, the literal, like the earth is in this country is, is, um, is showing something we've tried to bury. And I think looking at it and, and being okay that we're not going, if we look at it, we're not going to collapse as a society that we're, we're actually going to grow and, uh, you know, heal. Um, so I, I think, I, I think it becomes a home when you, um, when you honor it, that, that, that's what I would say. I mean, you know, that, that Roger's point is people don't just sprout from, you know, when it's sprout from the earth. Right. And, and, and I'm sure you experienced living in Canada growing up. As I said earlier, I think in passing, I was always asked where I was from. And if you were white, you weren't asked the same question. And and so it's, um, um, there are those frustrations. And and I, I, I try to get to a place of not being angry. I, I don't find that that's helpful um, or resentful. Um, that I, I had, I had people come to readings and say to me that, you know, I was, I was one of those kids in, I was in high school and when you guys came, I was one of those kids who was yelling, Packy, go home. You know, I didn't know, I didn't know um, this story. And, and so I, I, I think contributing um, to the conversation, uh, to the sort of cultural knowledge around us with, with books like this and, and you know, and, and um, is, uh, is a way to, to help people honor they can't if they don't know and if they haven't been taught i mean who knew this story like we weren't taught about i wasn't taught about residential schools in in my canadian upbringing so you know it's just kind of i just keep coming back to the word honoring well i think i think the the power of of books is like yours and and others which are sort of situated in these historical moments which are difficult to talk about um, and complicated to explain is that they provide 
people like me who went through it, another voice to kind of share other than my own. And I think that that was really, really important for me when I read this and I read some of the other books that have related themes or situated in the same context is, yeah, growing up, we didn't have people telling these stories and that had consequences because then people were unaware of what we were, had gone through. And as you mentioned earlier, our parents were prone to kind of just saying, we just have to make, make this, make the best of things. And we're not going to talk about these because, you know, people wouldn't understand anyway. So, you know, but as I said, they know that maybe there are some consequences to not telling stories as well. And, um, and, and it has, it, it doesn't just have, you know, sort of peripheral kind of, oh, well, you know, we'll just get on with it. But it, it had uh, for some of us, um, you know, quite significant uh, uh, consequences in terms of how we were treated, how we, uh, what areas and avenues of life were open to you? What kinds of you know opportunities um, were were denied, um, and just a kind of a grating sense of not belonging. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, and I think that that sense of self-loathing and the sense of you know not being comfortable in your own skin. I mean, I'm not saying that this was universally the case for South Asians in Canada, but for some, it has been that. And it's mm-hmm. only now when you read these accounts and when you read novels and you begin to see that, you know, you're not alone in this experience, but that doesn't erase the decades long, you know, fear and anxiety that you've grown up with because, and the choices you've made to kind of get around these problems and people of privilege don't have those experiences, you know, and that's the yes. other part. So I think that that's what yeah. novels do. That's what fiction provides is a kind of, you know, uh, a way for people to kind of explain some of these. And I think you've done it so beautifully. And I want to talk to you about your new project. Um I'm glad, I'm glad you asked that because as you were speaking, so you were you were speaking so beautifully right now, and and I felt like I was rambling because I feel much more able to talk about this stuff through fiction. I I, I the 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 book I've written uh, is with my agent right now, so I'm sort of in that fingers crossed, hope he likes it kind of uh, stage. But it 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 um if if where there is sweet was my my parents story um this one is i would say my story it's sort of set you know i was i was really when i was first writing this sort of I, I sort of follow the impulse of what scenes i, I want to write with no real idea where the book is going but it was consistently set in sort of 1970s kitchener where i grew up and and so i wrote a lot of scenes around that and and it follows a couple of uh, uh girls who are childhood friends and and their lives and and how as um you know, in my experience, being sort of younger than the magical age of eight, um, when you come to a new country, and so you adapt very easily, right, in, in outward ways, in terms of how you speak the language, and you're a very Canadian kid. Um, but there's a lot more stuff, <laughs> you know, that that affects how you live in your world, your how you relate to men, how women relate to, to men, how you how you feel how how you feel uh, sort of you know you're, you're an academic and I was I'm thinking when I was growing up like nobody in my family went to university like you know it, it, everybody was like ran a shop or they were whatever right like it was people who went to university were like rock stars or something they were just sort of this it was just so incomprehensible and so you know you're, you're kind of living in this 
in this world where you're, uh, uh, you know, and the book gets into these 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 young women who who are uh, extremely well educated, who are uh, whose parents are relatively liberal, who grew up in a very supportive society, and yet there is this stuff like Remet's experience as a wife is not that far off. <laughs> Uh, these 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 girls and so uh, their their relationships are challenged in a way in a kind of invisible quiet way um, with with men but also uh, in their workplace in their careers in 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 ways that are really um, hard and it, you can't sort of, I I personally can't I find it very hard to articulate that uh, just it, if I'm asked a question to just answer that but if you see if you watch. If you read, uh, you know this this character and, and see how she has to navigate this world that appears to be, you know, at, at just abundant and, like I said, with the education and all these things that supposedly, if you give a, that to a girl, she, you know, she'll just blossom as though centuries of experience <laughs> and and just constant, constant, you know, marginalization in quiet ways. Oh, my dad has an accent. And, you know, I can see how that person at McDonald's is talking to him. Um, those things have an effect on you. And, um, and I don't see my, like, I remember I used to, I went to the university of Toronto and, and in hard house, I think it was in hard house, all the, you know, the wall of white men everywhere. Right. Like, and I, I couldn't imagine, um, I couldn't imagine myself into that. It was so difficult. And so, um, yeah, all, I, I, for me, the the way to really share these experiences, or even not even to share them, even just really examine them for myself, um, is through fiction. Um, it's just the language that you know I I, I can really uh, I can explore in, and and um, so hopefully <laughs> I can share that soonish. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm I'm seriously looking forward to that, and I think that that is a whole new sort of generation of books that needs to be written about those those 70s and 80s experiences which um, you know we we went through um i haven't seen those written out either um you know in in novel form you know the immigrant story tends to be and i read a lot of them and they were excellent and i don't mean to disparage them but they would you know they would be a a woman from india who came with her husband who's an academic and lives in cold calgary and you know and, and it's beautifully written but that's not my story right so um, it's it's very different when you've grown up as as the kind of Canadian kid, but not quite Canadian kid, right? So it's it's um it's interesting. Anyway, yeah, no, I think that's I'm really looking forward to that, and uh, I hope I hope everything goes well with it. Um, in closing, I wanted to ask you if you would be able to read us a passage from Where the Air Is Sweet. So after the prologue, it's the 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 uh, Chronological beginning of the story in 1921, uh, chapter one. The earliest sensation Roger remembers about the time he started attending school at age three was an ache, a longing for something he could not yet imagine. By the time he completed primary school, this ache had been transformed into a belief that something essential was missing here in the Gujarati village of Maria, the land of his birth, the land of his ancestors. In the months before he married, before he prepared to embark on adulthood, he took to stepping outside his family's hardware shop and standing still in the middle of the gully, grains of fine pale dust catching in the hairs inside his nose. 
He would look around him at the shops he could describe to their last detail, at the houses he had known since he had known anything. Then he would close his eyes and he would see nothing. And so in his 20th year, on the very day that he buries his stillborn son, he pats his wife's fevered forehead, picks up his neatly packed suitcase, straightens his hat, and hitches a ride on a truck to Rajkot. From there, he takes a crowded train to Bombay. And from there, after a week's wait, he boards a steamship bound for the East African port of Mombasa. The year is 1921. The powerful current of the Indian Ocean tosses Raju about, leaving him retching and disoriented. Even when the waters are calm and the ship steady, his body refuses to be still. His head continues to spin, his stomach continues to turn, and he continues to vomit. When finally, 12 days later, he steps off the steamer in Mombasa, his eyes having sunk deep into his head, his trousers now hanging on his body, he drops to his knees and kisses the ground. He stands up and begins walking, feeling his strength return with each step. As he licks the grains of dust from his lips and feels them scrape against his teeth, an elderly Asian man, barefoot and wearing only a singlet and threadbare trousers, shakes his head and laughs. In Gujarati, he says to Raju, it is an illusion. This earth moves even more than the sea. Smiling, Raju nods and continues walking away from the ocean. Never trust it, my son, calls the old man after the young one. Thank you. Um, and thank you, Tasneem Jamal, for joining me today. Wonderful to hear your story and looking forward to more. Thank you. I really enjoy that. That was Zulkafar Hirji in conversation with Tasneem Jamal about her novel, Where the Air is Sweet. The author and host are both participating in Carleton University's Beyond Resettlement Conference, which includes a public event on November 14th. Visit writersfestival.org for all the details. Thanks to all our patrons, volunteers, and donors. And thanks to the Government of Canada, the Government of Ontario, the City of Ottawa, the Ontario Arts Council, the Canada Council for the Arts, Ottawa Public Library, Carleton University, and CBC for their ongoing support. This podcast is produced by Aaron Flynn, original music and sound engineering by Mike Dubay. Kira Harris is our program director, and I'm Sean Wilson. Thank you for listening. Music